Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radeye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? I'm great and excited to talk to a new guest. Uh, our new trip to Omaha is approaching and it feels great to speak to a local. In today's episode of Investing by the Books, we look forward to speaking with Todd Finkel. Todd is a professor of entrepreneurship at Gonzaga University in the state of Washington. He has taught for 33 years at four different universities, publishing more than 250 articles, books, presentations and grants. So which book will we speak about today, Niklas? So in today's conversation, we will talk about Todd's new book, Warren Buffett, Investor and Entrepreneur. Uh, Todd has met Buffett multiple times and what is a bit different with Todd's book is that it focuses on, on Buffett as an entrepreneur, which I think is a new and interesting perspective. Warren Buffett, Investor and Entrepreneur, was released by Columbia Business School Publishing in March 2023. And we are delighted to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Todd Finkel. Hello, Todd, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Hi, Eddie. Thank you for coming on and taking the time. I know it's late at your place. Where, where are you today? I am in uh, Spokane, Washington in the United States, and it's 11.30 at night. But you're a night owl. <laughs> I am definitely a, a night owl. <laughs> I had coffee for this uh, talk this evening, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, I'm happy to be here and excited to be talking to you guys. We appreciate it. So, so to begin, uh, can you tell our listeners a bit about your background and what led you into the world of, of investing? Um, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which uh, is the hometown of, of Mr. Warren Buffett. And uh, my father was an entrepreneur and I had four brothers that were all entrepreneurs. So I was surrounded by that growing up. And I naturally... You know, usually what happens when you're surrounded by entrepreneurs, you become an entrepreneur. So I started doing a lot of entrepreneurial things when I was young, uh, very similar to what Warren did. But Warren was really hardcore uh, when he was a kid. I wasn't quite as hardcore. And uh, then I went off to uh, speed up things. I went off to, to high school at a place called Omaha Central High School, which is a public school. And that's where Buffett sent all of his kids. So I went to high school there at, at Central with Peter, who was uh, Warren's youngest kid, a uh, really nice guy, very humble. And nobody knew that Pete's dad was Warren Buffett because in 1976, nobody really knew Warren Buffett. And so no, none of us really talked about it. Uh, after high school, I ended up going to uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, uh, where Warren ended up graduating from with his undergraduate degree. And I studied life sciences. My brother was a plastic surgeon, so I kind of went in that direction. He ended up, uh, my senior year was a, a transitional year for me because uh, I met a friend from uh, South Dakota. He had a, a father that lived in San Diego and he was an ophthalmologist. And so we went out there to San Diego to live out there for uh, the summer. Uh, and this is a critical point in my life was when I was out there, he was watching CNBC every day and the stock all the stocks and everything and i've never really been exposed to that before and he was also into the to uh the elliott wave theory and this was my again my first exposure i didn't know anything about the elliott wave theory and uh but that was to change my life just that little exposure uh by being around that so um I ended up, you know, leaving San Diego. I hung out there for a while. It was a great place. San Diego is just a fabulous place. So I went back to Nebraska, to, unfortunately, to get my degree. And uh, I really kind of wanted to study uh, investments, you know, because that really turned me on. And and uh, But I was so far along. I was a senior now, and I didn't want to go back and restart everything again. So I ended up getting my degree and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And uh, I 
ended up applying to dental school and I got into all the dental schools that I applied to, but I did, I didn't think I'd be happy doing that. It didn't matter how much money I made. I just didn't think I'd be happy doing it. And so I ended up getting more into the Elliott wave theory and investments. And I, I started an investment partnership when I was 23 with a friend of mine that was a stockbroker. And we invested together for a couple of years. It was more speculation because the Elliott Wave Theory, that's, in my opinion, uh, more speculation than investing. You know, but when you're 23 and you study, you haven't really studied business, you have no clue. But that was fun. It was probably the most fun I've ever had, you guys. But unfortunately, we kind of went up and down, you know, just like investments do. And so my my partner uh, and I would talk about getting Porsches, you know, one week and the next week we would be talking about, you know, what graduate schools we were going to be going to. And we ended up both uh, going to grad school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and got my MBA at Wisconsin. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to get into investments now. And so I went down to Chicago and I interviewed at the Chicago Mercantile. And at the Chicago Mercantile, uh, I really wanted to, to get into it. And they told me, well, you have to start out as a runner. So a runner would be running back and forth and carrying orders to the checker and, and you, you get the trader and all this other stuff. And I, and I said, well, how much am I going to be making doing this? And they said, $7 an hour. And I, I, I was like laughing to myself, $7 an hour. How am I going to pay off my student loans if I'm making $7 an hour, you know? I mean, and, uh, but I, I really did want to do it, but I was in a quandary, and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I went back to uh, Madison, which is where I was living, and I ended up talking to a – professors are great. You know, if you can find a professor that really cares about you, uh, you're very, very lucky. And I found one that cared about me, and he sat down with me for about two to three hours one day, and he said, Todd, you're an entrepreneur. If you go work in a corporation, you're going to be looking for a way out within a week. So he recommended, he suggested to me, hey, have you ever thought about getting a PhD? And uh, I, I said no. And he goes, I think that that would be really good for you because it's very entrepreneurial. You get to teach what you want to teach to students. And you can do research on whatever you want to do. And like Warren Buffett, write a book on Warren Buffett. You know, how cool is that? I'm getting paid to, to write a book about Warren Buffett. And uh, um, I took him up on it. You know, I, I went on and I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, and I ended up getting a, a PhD in entrepreneurship. There were only two schools that offered it at the time, and I ended up getting a degree in it, and I was a hot commodity. Um, this was before entrepreneurship got hot. So I went with my, my gut and my passion, which is what Buffett always talks about. Go with what your passion is, and, and you'll be fine. So Todd, which year is this? This was in 1989, 1989. Um, I went to, to Madison from 87 to 89, and then from 89 to, to 93, I got my PhD. Um, and that was my, my entry into uh, the world of academia, and I loved it. I knew from the first time I taught, from the first moment I walked into that classroom, I knew this was where I belonged. Thanks so much for the for the background, Todd. And uh, I mean, what what we're going to speak about today is is what you mentioned, the book that that you have written about uh, Buffett and and Berkshire. And uh, I mean, there are many books out there on on Buffett now. Why did you decide to write another one? That that was not my initial intention. Was I didn't like wake up one day and say I was going to write a book on Warren. Uh, my cousin lives in Omaha, Steve uh, Nog, 
great guy, and he knows Susie Buffett. So he kind of has an in. He went to school with her at, at Central High. He called me up one day and he goes, Todd, you gotta you gotta bring your students to Omaha because uh, Warren is inviting schools to come visit him. And so I uh, wrote a one-page letter to Warren saying, you know, hey, I went to school with your son and you know, I'm doing all this great stuff, da 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 da. Sent it to Warren and uh, his secretary called me up and said, well, the list is so long. It's years long. You cannot, don't even bother to put your name on the list because everybody wants to go see Warren, you know? So I was kind of frustrated and I said, okay, I won't put my name on the list, which was a mistake. You know, I had, uh, I kind of always hit my head against the wall thinking, oh, I sure put my name on the list. And uh, that was a, a lesson that I, I learned in, in persistence. I wasn't persistent enough. And hopefully you guys can, people will learn from my mistake. Um, so I still wanted to learn as much as I could about Buffett. I mean, Buffett is He's the king. What exactly does Warren Buffett do? What is Warren Buffett's secret sauce? That's, that's really kind of what drove me initially was, what is this guy doing? And I didn't know what he was doing, and I read all this stuff, and I, and I had a hard time figuring it out. I mean, it took me a long time to figure it out. You know, I, it took me 14 years to write this book. Nine of them were part-time and five were full-time. And, and the, the part-time was the, like what I'm talking about right now is, is uh, writing a case study in order to get invited to go visit him. So I got rejected, but I wrote a case study about Warren Buffett to learn as much as I could about him during the Great Recession. And as soon as that got, got uh, published... Then I, at an academic journal, I had a great epiphany that, hey, why don't I send this to Warren Buffett and see if I can get invited? You know, think outside of the box. That's what Warren Buffett loves. He loves people that think way outside of the box. He thinks that the most successful business people are not people with Ivy League degrees, but are people with the most business experience that think way outside of the box. Now, I didn't know that back then, but now I do, and I can share that with you. Uh, but so I sent him a, the case study, and within 10 days, I got a letter back from him inviting me to Omaha. And that was in November of 2009 when he bought uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. And we went up to Omaha and we visited him and there were camera crews following him all around Omaha, but he didn't want to have anything to do with them because he was with us. His focus was with the students. He loves to teach. He cares about the students. That's the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. Uh, and uh, anyway, so that was just, that was great. You know, we went to a couple of his subsidiaries and then we uh, did a two and a half hour Q&A with him. And uh, then we went out to lunch with him. I sat right across from him and I asked him, how do, how do you value a company? And he goes, the, the uh, discounted cash flow method. That's all he said. <laughs> it's funny because when you hear Munger, he said, I never seen you do that in, in life. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But he says that he does it, so it's, uh, yeah. I, I, I thought, I was thinking to myself, wait a second, that can't be the only thing that this guy does is the discounted cash flow. So I asked him the question again, and that's all he said again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but he, he's like your grandpa. You know, he's just such a nice man and very humble. So, I, yeah, after that, you know, the students all had a great time. But the feedback that I got from the students, you know, I asked them, you know, what they thought about the experience. And and uh, not one of them said the most important thing was learning about money. It was about his values and how to live your life. 
that was the the most significant thing that they learned. I'm sure they learned all about you know investing and, and that, but it was the value system. You know, that's a little bit of background of why I wrote the book. But you know, it's the book. I don't know if you want to hear it or not, but I, I one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur. I'll integrate entrepreneurship here with Warren Buffett is that when you enter an industry, you've got to figure out how you're going to differentiate yourself from everybody else. Right? So I had a challenge with that when writing a book about Warren Buffett, you know, there's a lot of books that are out there on Warren Buffett. Who's going to be interested in hearing my book versus other books. So that was something that I had to work on. And it took time, and I, I just decided to emphasize entrepreneurship, which is my PhD. I have a PhD in entrepreneurship and strategic management, and integrate that throughout the book. But also, I integrated, you know, I'm from Omaha. I know the town. I know the people. I know the family. Um, and uh, I, I interviewed Susie Buffett for the book. Um, it's probably the most up-to-date biography on Buffett. Uh, the, I'm not sure exactly what the date is of the others, but they're pretty old compared to mine. I mean, you really have some some interesting details there in the book. I mean, one thing that really surprised me and Eddie most maybe was and what we have to ask you again about because we, we really can't believe it. <laughs> and that is uh, if Buffett really has a, a handball court in the basement of his house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. And, and I know that because my brother uh, knows Howie, the oldest son. I think Susie's older than him. She's the oldest uh, of the family. But Howie... Um, played handball with my brother in the court. And I talked to another guy in Omaha that I know, and he said, now there's just a bunch of papers that are in the, the hand court. Probably all of his 10Ks and annual reports <laughs> are in there. <laughs> but, yeah, he does have that there. Yeah, that's funny that you brought that up. When you did all this research about Buffett, what, what has surprised you the most? I, I think uh, what surprised me the most was was his childhood. And I've done a lot of research on very famous entrepreneurs, and I'm always curious about what motivates them and their background. And I like to get inside their head and, and learn that. And so when I did research on Buffett and from various angles, I, I learned different things about his childhood You know, before he was even two, his father, uh, during the Great Depression, his father lost his job and he, he lost all the family's money. You know, all the banks went under and he was a stockbroker at a bank. So he lost his job and 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 then he went to his uh, his father to get a job at the grocery store, the family grocery store. And his father said, we can't afford to have you work here, you know, but we can give you food on credit, you know, meaning you have to pay it back. So, and, and what that did to the family was just caused so much stress in the family that the, the mother, his mother started to have psychiatric problems. And they said, uh, or he said that when, You would wake up in the morning, you could tell by her voice what kind of a day it was going to be in the house. And uh, he even said that, you know, she would call him worthless, which is something that I've never heard before. And, um, and, and he had problems with her his whole life. I didn't know that either, you know, before doing this so that that might have been another motivating factor for him to prove himself but i think even further than that might have been what i call the poverty effect growing up in an environment like that where you don't have any money everybody thinks that you know warren buffett oh he had everything well he didn't have everything this it was the complete opposite 
So I like to equivocate that possibly, and I can't say this with certainty, the poverty effect uh, that he has, and it's possible he still has that. And, you know, the poverty effect, you can never get enough. And he still works, and he still works hard, and he has all this money. And, you know, I don't think I'd be doing that if I had all that money, you know. Uh, but he just seems to love it, you know. And But that that uh, was the uh, most interesting thing for me. And, and uh, um, yeah. Um, I think that could be a reason why so many people can identify with him. Even where, where, whatever background you have and wherever you are in life, you can somehow identify yourself with his journey and everything that he has been telling in all of his uh, writing and speaking materials. And if we go into the entrepreneurship a bit more, uh, the title of your book is Warren Buffett, Investor and Entrepreneur. And in episode 35, we spoke to Derek Lido. He's a professor of entrepreneurship at Princeton. And we spoke about his latest book, The Entrepreneurs. And his definition of entrepreneurs is that they are one, uh, self-directed in their actions. Two, they are innovative in ways that create perceived value in their local culture. And three, they entice others to offer them something of value for delivering their innovation. So what is your definition of uh, entrepreneur? I'm not quite that technical. I've been in the, I've been teaching entrepreneurship for 33 years. So... I'm pretty simplistic. I mean, I, I'm more into the characteristics and motivations of entrepreneurs. And But s- simply, I think that they are, being an entrepreneur is more about an entrepreneurial mindset. You know, they, sure, starting a company is part of being an entrepreneur, but you, you guys are entrepreneurs. You know, you started this podcast inside your organization. And, you know, if I was your boss, I'd be giving you resources to go out and find some of the best people to interview and to really enhance the exposure of the firm. Um, That's just me. I'm a big pro entrepreneurship guy. Buffett came from a very entrepreneurial family. His his relatives that came over, I believe, from France were farmers initially, and then uh, they moved to Nebraska, and his grandfather started a grocery store, and his father had the grocery store. Uh, no, 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 his father didn't have it. I'm sorry. His father um, had a, he was a stockbroker after the stock market crashed, so he started his own firm, so he was an entrepreneur, too, so he came from a lot of entrepreneurial roots, and uh, his mother, also her family had a lot of entrepreneurial roots uh, in it as well. So he was surrounded by people that were entrepreneurs. And the funny thing, <laughs> I, I wanted definitely wanted to share this with you. This is one of my favorite Warren Buffett stories. Is you know he did so much stuff when he was a kid, and he was reading books when he was six or seven years old in his father's office. And and uh, he said by the time he was ten years old, he wanted to be an entrepreneur, and he didn't want to work for anybody else. When he was ten years old, he said that. Pretty amazing. When I was ten years old, I was too busy playing baseball with my friends. And he's talking about being an entrepreneur. And not working for anybody. I believe that has been an inspiration for for many investors uh, who want to have this freedom. And uh, in that sense, I guess many investors are entrepreneurs. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, and he continues to be entrepreneurial. And some people disagree with me. They don't think he's an entrepreneur, but I I disagree with them. (laughs) And uh, uh, he just continued to be entrepreneurial from being a kid. And then he was entrepreneurial when he was in college and he went to to Penn and he thought he wasn't learning anything at Penn. And then he went to Nebraska and he had 50 people working for him while he was at Nebraska delivering papers. And then, you know, he ended up going to uh, Columbia uh, for graduate school after Harvard rejected him because he didn't have enough experience 
And uh, there he, you know, of course, met Ben Graham and he learned all about investing and everything like that. And, and he innovated upon investing in his life. Very entrepreneurial, you know, and then he had his own partnership. Uh, very entrepreneurial. You know, he didn't want to start his own investment partnership, but his family wanted him to because they knew he was so smart and he could make money for them. And, uh, um, but I believe his average rate of return when he had the investment partnership was like 36% a year. Pretty amazing. He became a millionaire when he was 25. He was going to go back to Omaha and go, go to school, take some classes and read books and retire until his family started bugging him to open up his partnership. And, uh, of course, that you know grew into Berkshire Hathaway and his biggest mistake is buying Berkshire Hathaway because uh, he wanted to sell his shares in Berkshire Hathaway to the to the uh, CEO and the, the the board, and they undercut him by, I think it was 12.5 cents, and he got mad. And so he ended up buying out all the shares of the company, which was probably the biggest mistake he's ever made. And I've got a chapter on mistakes, 21 mistakes that he's made and the behavioral biases that led to those. And he just, he admits it, it was his biggest mistake. And, and, the opportunity cost today is like $400, $500 billion, according to Buffett. I mean, I, I want to dig a bit deeper into that. I, I just listened, re-listened to the 2003 annual meeting with, uh, um, I mean, with uh, Buffett and, and Munger having a discussion about uh, buying seized candies. And um, Munger said that if they would have asked for 100,000 more, we would have walked. And Buffett chipped in with, if if they would have asked for ten thousand more, we would have walked. <laughs> <laughs> and and possibly that that could have been the biggest mistake um, if they hadn't bought it. And and uh, going into that a bit more, Sis Candice was an example of of Buffett transitioning to buy quality businesses. And you're right that that Charlie Munger had an enormous influence on on Buffett in this aspect. Can you elaborate a bit more on that, um, Charlie? You know, initially it was Graham's methodology that, that Buffett used. And when we visited him, he showed us what he would do uh, with Graham's methodology. He would get out the, the Moody's manual and just kind of go through the pages and look for low PDE ratios, you know, and things like that. Uh, and then Charlie came in and, and kind of combined Phil Fisher with that and looking at really good companies at, at good prices that you didn't have to do the the cigar butts but you could buy really good companies and hold them for the long term and uh, that's when buffett really changed his style there so they say that it was you know graham and and then phil fisher and then charlie munger all had a uh, definite impact on his investment style it was quite funny when they had that discussion on seas candies uh, munger brought up that uh, there is some there is this mythology about uh, about the idea that 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 he had been this uh, great enlightener enlightener to warren buffett but i mean he he more or less thinks about that they came up with this together uh, that both transitioned into more into buying quality businesses and maybe uh, maybe Munger had had that thought earlier, but uh, it's it's not that uh, it it seems like he thought that Buffett would have done this anyway, and uh, I guess part of it is because when when Berkshire became bigger, it's harder to do those kind of transactions that that you have to do in the that that he did in the early partnership years. What what do you think about that? One thing I notice about Buffett is that he doesn't like to take credit for a lot of things. So he's kind of a mystery to me after studying him all, all these years is, you know, he'll say, you know, you want a great partner and, you know, like somebody like Charlie and he, he gives them all these accolades, but I'm not so sure what that balance is between both of them when it comes to ideation and, and and doing things because he gives so much 
uh, attribution to Charlie, you know, and that's maybe that's off topic. I don't know. Um, no, but it's interesting. I mean, um, I think uh, the the mythology that that Munger think thinks it is. It may be part of that answer. I mean, that you're into that that actually Buffett. Uh, is quite an quite an original thinker, and uh, and he would have done this this anyway. I think so. Yeah, I, I agree with you, uh, uh, Nicholas. I think it would be interesting for people. Many many listeners probably know know this already, but can you dig into the overall factors that Buffett uh, looks at before deciding to make an investment? Uh, probably the most important thing is the moat factor. He always talks about the uh, business, you know, knowing the business and how it operates and, and the economics of the business. And uh, do they have a moat, you know, like Coca-Cola is kind of a overall low cost leadership, but they also have trade secrets that help out with the, uh, with the moat and their distributors and things like that. Uh, that would be one thing. Another thing, of course, is the management team. One thing I learned from my study, my book, is that he looks at the management salaries. And he also looks at what the company does with its money that it takes in. And that's one of the reasons why he loves Apple, because Apple buys back a lot of its stock in that's like his biggest stock holding. I think it's 41 points percent of his $334 billion stock holding. Uh, and him and Charlie talked about that uh, one time on CNBC. And they said that if they could, they would buy 100% of Apple. You probably remember that. Yeah. And I, I want to stop you a bit there because it's uh, Buffett has, is famous for, for saying that uh, he... He thinks the uh, quality of the business is more important than than the management team, but actually, when you read all his material, I think he got. A, I mean, he gave a lot of praise to to management, and he, he he writes a lot about the importance of of having a great management team and so on. So, uh, and I, I think this gets into this question about uh, entrepreneurship a bit as well. So, uh, what's your view on that? This. Uh, uh, is he really saying the truth in that statement? <laughs> um, yeah, I think he is. I think he he uh, puts a big value on management. And, you know, another quality that he looks for before he'll, he'll get into a company, uh, of course, is the uh, valuation of the firm. And does it have a margin of safety? Uh, and the margin of safety, I've learned, you know, that's a hard thing to say, oh, he only buys it when it's 25% down or 30%. Down. That's kind of a variable figure um, that I haven't figured out yet. Maybe maybe you can shed some light on that for me. Um, but when he was with the the uh, days of, of Graham, you know, Graham would look at 50% down from its high, you know, that... He was a little bit more outrageous when it came to the margin of safety, but I think I think you know margin of safety now Buffett will it would all depend on the business. You know if he if he can get into a business that he knows he's going to get a certain rate of return, you know, even if it's not you know undervalued significantly, I think he would get into that. I think we as investors all, always want to have that precise figure in our mind. Uh, if it's the margin of safety, if it's the, I mean, what discount rate does he use? I, I've heard that many times. People people want to know what what exact discount rate does Buffett use? And uh, yeah, so what does he use? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think actually it's not that interesting to 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 speak about this different. Uh, I mean these de- details because that won't help you so much as an investor. If you use nine percent, ten percent, eleven percent, that won't change it. And I think it's it's more or less the same on the margin of safety. It's not a. I don't think it's actually a quantitative figure that you're after. You're after um, 
because it's I think it's easy that you discount too much. Then you start to discount. You you're being cons- conservative maybe about the business, um, and if you're conservative about the business and the valuation, then I guess it would be hard for you to find any good investments that you that you actually will will do. I mean, what's your take on this? Uh, I mean. Uh, the, the the bias so to so to say about investors wanting to quantify everything to the last detail. You know, in the book and in, in chapter six, I believe I, I do uh, case studies on Geico and Apple. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with the book, and I think I accomplished it, is I wanted to take investors through step by step. On, on how to value a company like Buffett does. You know, I looked at all these different books and none of them did it step-by-step. Step. Maybe maybe it's just me because I come from a different world from all these people that have all these business degrees. You know, my undergraduate degree was in life science. So I didn't have that background. I didn't have the luxury of, oh, this is easy. You know, I know how to do this. But I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are, that are just like me. So what I did in the book is I went through and I defined all these different equations. And I talked about the disc, what is the discount rate? What, what should I be using for the discount rate? You know, just like what you're talking about. And, and you know, how do you do a, a DCF? What is a DCF? And you know, what's the terminal rate? How, how do I determine the terminal rate? What percentage should I use for the terminal rate? You know, there's all these variables that you have to look at. And, and no wonder why I'm so confused and people are so confused. But anyway, I did it in the book. And I think I did a really good job in the book of doing that and showing people at least they have an example of how to do all this. And it's not like going on to a computer and having the computer doing it. It's it's old school, doing it by hand and learning actually how to do it. And speaking more about biases and, and how to behave as an investor, you, you dedicate one chapter in the book to seven cognitive biases. And we recommend everyone to, to buy the book to read all of them. But maybe we can take one example, uh, herding bias that I think is interesting. And we can hear from the name pretty much what it is, but maybe you can explain a bit, a bit more what it is and why it's dangerous for, for investors. Yeah, th- thanks for bringing that up, Eddie. That that chapter was most most of, one of the best chapters in the book, I think, because Buffett and Munger both say that you know valuing a company is one thing, but what's more important is the temperament that you have, and the temperament. A lot of it has to do with the uh, your biases. And my my friend, um, uh, Matt Koffler, who's a CFA, helped me write part of this book. And he really pushed me to write this chapter. I was done writing the book. And then he said, you need to put a chapter in there on behavioral biases, you know, and I put on I worked so hard on this book, and then he's telling me to write another chapter on behavioral <laughs> biases. And, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's crazy. And uh, But I'm so happy that I did that because behavioral biases are so important, not only in investing, but in everything. You know, and and you bring up you bring up uh, the uh, herding bias. A great example of that, and it's like the worst bias of all of them, I guess, is uh, the the whole Silicon Valley bank thing that just happened is a great example of that, right? In the in the end, it's 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 sort of a bias, but it's also a rational decision by some of them to actually do it. If, if someone starts it, then uh, I mean, you risk losing all your money. So it's 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 reasonable that you that you also do it. So in some sometimes when I think about these biases, um, it's not it's not true that they are entirely bad. I mean, sometimes they are actually good, but they could they could be I mean detrimental for for businesses in this case for for banks and uh, and so on. But for the individual, it it may be it may be a rational decision. But it brings some systemic risks. 
Exactly. It's, I mean, it may be bad for some actors in society, but not bad for, for all. And I think that's actually true about about many of these biases that it's they are they are bad for for some types of decisions and for some actors but not for for all so what can we learn from buffett when it comes to herding bias um buy when there's blood in the streets and sell when everybody's buying i love charlie on this charlie talks about this <laughs> charlie's always you know, I, I love Charlie. I'm a big Charlie fan. That's why I have a chapter in the book on Charlie. I just thought, you know, how can you ha- write a, a Warren Buffett book without talking about Charlie Munger? And uh, he he constantly abuses people. He calls them lemmings, you know, people that are following other people. He, he brings it up almost every year at the shareholder meeting. <laughs> He's just obsessed with it. It's really funny. But... Uh, I thought I'd bring that up. The uh, there's other behavioral biases. I uh, my my big weakness on a behavioral bias is the loss aversion one. I have a, a really big problem with that. I have problems with other ones too, but the loss aversion one is uh, it's like you feel twice as much pain when you lose money as you do as when you gain money. So uh, I don't know what to say, what more to say about that. <laughs> it, it definitely affects you. I mean, what's interesting, what's interesting to hear there is that you're aware of these biases. You're, you're aware of, of the ones that are maybe most hurting you. But what, what are you doing to minimize the effect of it? I, I'm more conservative. You know, I, I'm not as big of a gambler and um and i think it's been good for me so is it also that you focus on maybe i mean more conservatively financed companies and maybe in sectors that are more stable than others or just in my overall portfolio i i'm just more conservative if if i know that i can get a certain rate of return from something more guaranteed i'll go in that direction right now i change you know, depending on the economy, you know, for the past couple of years, we've had some problems with the economy. Uh, and, you know, once we get back on track again, I'll definitely, you know, revise my my portfolio. But for now, I'm, I'm being pretty conservative. And related to conservatism can be to be less active. Yeah, which definitely also helps. How about you? I try to be the same. I, I mean... You try to, I think, follow the follow the herd, but the reverse order, so to speak. I mean, usually that means that if if all the money goes into some sectors, then it's, uh, I mean, then they are typically overvalued. And if you have a conservative mindset, then you then you should stay away more or less, and, and you should avoid going with the crowd. So I think that's definitely part of it. And I think your answer is spot on that. Uh, it, it changes with the environment. I think um, in the in my early days as an investor, I was really conservative, and uh, I I just felt that the more I learned, the less I uh, the less I agreed to to having that. I mean, status quo, so to speak. I mean, to always be conservative, you need to know when to be aggressive, and that's something I really learned from from Charlie Munger. That I mean, if you have a if you have a really uh, good company at a good price in front of you, you should you should strike and you should maybe take a you you, you should be I mean be there to take a a, a big position and and uh, that's I think has been really helpful for me as an investor. And to continue on the track of, of learning, uh, if we go into academia a bit, you d- as you describe in the book. Buffett is skeptical of academia and he considers experience the most important for business success, as he also mentioned now in the beginning of this conversation. So from, from your role as a professor, now you're a professor of entrepreneurship, but what's your what's your take on academia and uh, business success? Do you really want to know, Eddie? <laughs> 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 I am very non-traditional uh, in... Buffett says you only need two classes to become a successful investor, a uh, class on 
you know, behavioral finance or, you know, how people behave in, in the financial markets and how to value a company. So he's not a big believer in education. And, you know, and I've talked to Susie. I haven't really talked that much about Susie Buffett today, but she never got a college degree. Uh, Peter Buffett never got a college degree. Howie never got a college degree. And their father doesn't seem to have a problem with that. You know, and Susie was laughing about that. They seem to be doing pretty good. I think the problem with education, and I've had a problem with it my entire career, is the lack of applicability of what they're doing in the real world. The practical aspect, I, I just, I don't get it. When I was in school, I never really got got anything that was worth very much. You know, the entrepreneurship class, small business management was one of the few classes uh, actually worked with a, a company and I consulted with them. And I just said, when I went into to, uh, teaching, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make it as real world as possible for the students so they can learn from their mistakes and successes. So not everybody in academia thinks that way. Academia is too focused on theory. Uh, you know, and people, you know, five people will read their article and uh, then it'll get published somewhere. Um, I'll probably get a lot of slack from what I'm saying to you guys right now, but uh, that's just the way I feel, you know, and I felt that way for a long time, uh, that we're off track, you know. Any, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I wish I had uh, my professors were thinking like this when I went to business school more practical, not so much theory, and uh, read other types of books that we are doing in this podcast. I would have preferred that. And I've got nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> so so we are all big Buffett fans, and we, we heard a lot of praise for him today. Is there something that, that you don't agree with him on? Yeah, there there's some things that I don't agree with him with. Uh, you know, and it, you know, the one thing that he keeps on telling everybody is do something that you love, Uh, that if you didn't have, if you didn't have to worry about money, go do it. You know, meaning that you know, if you don't have any money, go work for somebody. If you want to uh, work on Wall Street or whatever the case may be, the problem that I have with that is is something that I experienced when I was out into the real world. Hey, I wanted to to work in the investment industry, and I couldn't. Because I had, I was going to get paid seven dollars an hour as a runner, and I've kind, I kind of mentioned this to Buffett in writing, not, not in uh, uh, personally, but he, I think he's changed a little bit his attitude towards that uh, since he's read that. But we all don't have the luxury of having the resources to go do whatever we we want to do. Not everybody is like that. And I certainly wasn't like that. And I wish that I did have the resources. I might be in a completely different place today. I might be where you guys are at. That So that's one of my complaints about Buffett. And uh, this being a book podcast, uh, we always want to ask uh, the authors about uh, interesting books and and possibly also book projects as, as you're an author you've written this this fantastic book about about Buffett so I want to start with uh, apart from your book which book on Berkshire and Buffett was your biggest inspiration uh, I, I'd say Robert Hagstrom's uh, the Warren Buffett way definitely yeah that that's a classic and uh, do you have any new book projects in mind uh A big sigh after 14 years of working with this. <laughs> yeah, you know, my wife would, uh, if she was here right now, <laughs> she would she would be saying, you're not doing anything. <laughs> uh, you know, the whole chat GPT thing is really interesting. And, and you know, AI and that that that's pretty fascinating to me. And I. I My students and I have, have talked about that, and we're all pretty curious about what's going to happen just with everything. Uh, education, 
I read an article the other day that like 80% of the students are using that for papers and material and, you know, how are you going to grade them when they're doing things like that? I, I find that very fascinating. Uh, maybe writing a biography of somebody that's really famous and really interested in famous entrepreneurs, something uh, of that magnitude, but I'm not 100% sure. I've got two uh, presentations right before the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. I'm uh, presenting at the Gabelli uh, Research Conference and at the uh, 20th Annual Value Investor Conference with Robert Miles. And it's a lot of uh, interesting people that are going to be with me uh, presenting at those. And I'm really excited about that. You know, I'm getting a lot of exposure. And uh, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin contacted me uh, today, and he wanted a copy of my book. And uh, I sent him three copies. And I, so I said, give one to Becky Quick and give one to Joe Kernan. And <laughs> 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 I'm working on Bloomberg. So if you guys know of anybody at Bloomberg that uh, so I can get in there, I'm trying to get uh, access to Lisa Abramowitz and, and Tom Keene and John Farrow. Uh, and, you know, I just want people to to read the book and get some exposure. And uh, if nothing happens, that's okay. At least, you know, people will see my name and, and say, hey, that Finkel guy, man, you know, he wrote a good book. So, uh, well, Todd Finkel, thank you so much for a very interesting conversation about you and your new book, which we, of course, recommend everyone to, to buy and review. Uh, do you want to add something more before we finish up here? No, I just, I've really enjoyed the conversation uh, with you guys. I'm, I'm glad I have two new friends. Great. And, and where can our audience follow you? Uh, on Twitter at Todd Finkel. Uh, I've got a webpage uh, through Gonzaga University. I've got a, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I've got my own website, uh, toddfinkel.com. It's all different places that you can find me. Just Google me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Todd. This was uh, fantastic. See you in Omaha. Yeah, I'll see you in Omaha, Eddie. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.